and welcome back to the pod and the pendulum the horror movie podcast covering every franchise or theme one movie and one episode at a time i am your host mike snoonian uh lindsay is not with us tonight lindsay is actually doing her south by southwest coverage so she is going to miss our last episode here where we provided like an overview of like the french extremity movement in horror uh, and what an ending it's going to be um, covering a movie that I don't know if I will ever watch again. <laughs> I kind of forgot how much this movie is. And this movie is a lot. It is a lot. And it's far too much for me to talk about on my own. So we have a guest with us tonight. Uh, we, blah, blah, blah. He is the co-host of the cast of Cthulhu, a podcast reviewing films adapted from and inspired by the works of H.P. Lovecraft, Mr. Jim Rohner. Jim, how are we? Oh, Mike, I'm wonderful. And yeah, this, uh, I watched, I should say rewatched this a day ago and man, it, it, uh, it sits with you. Yeah, (laughs) it does. And we all get into it and we've talked before. Um, I was on your previous show. Um, I do movies badly where we talked about, the movies of um, Benson and Moorhead, who mm-hmm. are now joining the Marvelverse, which is going to be yeah and, interesting. And, uh, and just uh, to, I guess, reemphasize how things like in the Endless are full circle. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually we just got done covering both Resolution and the Endless on the Cast Cthulhu as Look well. At that. So Look um, at it, that. Yeah, it's been it's been a month of rewatching for me. Excellent. Uh, specifically rewatching things for Mike Snooney, and I should say. Yep. There you go. I just I have you busy, pretty <laughs> much. I have you busy. Okay. So before we kind of get into Inside and French horror in general, Jim, like, what was your introduction to horror? Like, what was it that got you into the genre? That's a really good question because I don't know if I have a good answer to it. I'm going to Well, steal... you, you better make something up, Jim. Just make it up. <laughs> Listen, all those years of improv comedy mm-hmm. should have prepared me for this. Um, I, I'm going to steal a line from someone who I don't remember said it, but it's sort of like remembering, you know, your first cheeseburger. Like, oh, sure, mm-hmm. I love cheeseburgers. I can't tell you the first time I had one. Um, but I do know that my fascination started early and um, maybe unlike or because uh, of my Christian upbringing, I, I actually am a, still a Christian to, to this day, though a very progressive, liberal, heathenistic mm-hmm. one. Um, but as a kid, you know, I went to private school my entire life. Um, and sure, I mean, you know, uh, you, you kind of understand the message of Jesus when you're a kid, but more what I latched onto were the stories of like the creation, revelation, you know, the angels and the demons and this eschatological, cosmological battle between the forces of good and evil. Mm-hmm. That was the stuff that I found myself really responding to. 
Um, and as I got older and I took art classes, you know, all types of um, visual art, that was the stuff that I found myself really kind of depicting um, was those sort of things. And, you know, like the, the movie, The Prophecy, I, I saw that when I was a kid on on basic cable one Sunday or Saturday afternoon and was like entranced by that movie. And, um, you know, I've told the story on a couple podcasts before, but I remember as a kid stumbling, stumbling upon The Exorcist when I was much younger than I probably should have stumbled upon it. Mm-hmm. And specifically the spider walk scene and being terrified and changing the channel quicker than, you know, I could even think to react. And even though I wasn't watching it, my brain was still like wondering, okay, but what's going on on that other channel? What's going on in that movie? And so being terrified, but having a strange fascination with it as well. My favorite show to this day, but when I was a kid was the Mm X-Files. And I remember watching it on Friday nights and then turning off the TV and the lights and bolting up the stairs because the house was dark and I had to get into bed. But while I was scared, I was excited at the same time. Mm -hmm. And just that tension or dichotomy, dissonance, whatever you want to call it, how they existed with inside of me was something that was very curious to me. And um, to this day, horror is still my favorite genre. Um, I, I guess in a weird way, it's sort of like it it, it reemphasizes or emphasizes to me or insinuates a a morality to the universe in the sense of um, whether you believe there's a god or not doesn't really matter but at least in horror there's kind of there are sides you know what the what the bad side is and you know what the good side is and that's incredibly simplistic but it still hints to a a morality or a dichotomy or mm-hmm. um, a way that we can make sense of our existence yeah. which is you know is is a is a, a fundamentally understandable story right. and yeah and, and I think that horror as you as you guys have been exploring in this series itself is just the genre which speaks to society so much better than any other genre i mean that Mm -hmm. idea of like you know if you want to know what scares a society see what movies they're watching yeah and so i I kind of i'm a sucker for a movie with social commentary even if it's a a badly made movie it's still like yeah Mm -hmm. but it it says something about this suburban existence so it's, it's okay in my book it's interesting you say morality because I'm wondering what your idea is. Like a lot of times with horror movies, we talk about the kinds of characters that survive and the kind of characters that are killed off and whether or not it was, you know, kind of explicit that it was done it, it was done by filmmakers. A lot of times there are the characters that would lead that more, you know, hedonistic um, lifestyle. I would say just you're kind of like, really like average lifestyle where you pursue, you know, pursuits of the flesh, you want sex, you want to get messed up. You want to go out and have some fun. (laughs) Um, Did that, how did that kind of morality kind of jive with, like you had said, like the moralistic teachings of like, you know, your, your upbringing or your religion. It's an interesting question because I know uh, certainly I I know the dogma that I was taught in school, uh, but there wasn't a whole lot of application specifically to art. I mean, the, the most the most relevance that it was given was sort of music. I mean, what bands I shouldn't listen to or what music I should listen to. Yeah. Um, and even my parents, you know, God bless them. I was a latchkey kid. Yep. So uh, they didn't have a lot of oversight on what I, or, or, or insight, I guess, into what I was watching. And 
they were they were a bit older i mean my dad uh you know my, my dad is currently 84 he was 46 years old when i was born so by the time i was 13 he had no idea what pop no. culture was really so they didn't really know what was not acceptable or what the evangelical environment claimed was not acceptable because they were out of touch with things um they knew what there was a the local radio station for where i i'm i live in manhattan but i grew up in in the suburbs of new jersey mm -hmm. you know right outside of manhattan so the, the local radio station was uh 99.1 was the christian you know uh, radio station which kind of like here's this movie coming out here's the parental guidelines for you and here's what you shouldn't but it, and so they they knew those top line items but other than that um they had no idea uh right. what what was what was good or what was bad in terms of that sort of stuff and even they were somewhat responsible for planting those seeds because i mean one of the first movies my mom took me to was the 1990 teenage mutant ninja turtles movie mm -hmm. and looking back on it like oh there's that's actually very violent and there's yeah. some swearing in there and that kind of stuff but for my mom it was sort of like yeah but there are good guys taking over the bad guys so it's mm -hmm. like a, it's an okay thing for my kids to yeah. watch um and so, yeah, I mean, so that idea of, I mean, man, books have been written on, on this idea of, of the morality in, in horror films. But I think for me, I, I just always love the idea of a regular person contextually overcoming something which is not regular, an ordinary person overcoming the extraordinary, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and that's always appealed to me. That's always appealed to me of uh, the idea of like, your life was normal until this thing and then this person rose to the occasion to conquer it basically mm -hmm. i mean one of my favorite movies is Shaun of the dead and the journey for that character is really like you have earned your right to be lazy because you have proven that when the situation demands it you will rise to it now mm -hmm. go ahead and, and go back and be lazy because we know what you are actually capable right. of kind of a thing um so i've, I've always appreciated that and and, and just as someone who is a Christian who goes to a church, which is really trying to be very progressive, trying to be affirming, trying to speak truth to power. The fact that horror gave voice to the kind of people that mm -hmm. uh, mainstream society wanted to marginalize or really suppress and push down has always been, you know, that's always been part of the horror genre, basically, mm -hmm. um, you know, giving voice to the, to the, the queer folks or giving voice to the, the people of color um that they could tell stories that were not just relevant to them but to kind of make people understand like this is the fear that i live in this is the situation we have experienced mm -hmm. um you know there's something about um a genre that's kind of basically been popularized by a, a groups of misfits basically that i find so appealing yeah um you know it, it is that thing of like uh there's there's gatekeepers in cinema obviously you're never going to see a, a, one of these French extremity movies nominated for best foreign language film. Um, but that's because those people aren't interested in hearing these other stories. These people are interested in kind of the way of life that they've become accustomed to. So the fact that there is a genre that's basically kind of like, Hey, we're, we're the fuck you people. Yeah. I really, I really, really respond to. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned like, you know, like gatekeeping in horror. And that's obviously a pretty big thing. Like there's, unfortunately still a lot of that that goes on my you know i know my own experience with horror has been different in that yeah. it's always been really supportive and like oh you haven't seen this well let me lend you a copy of it like i think you would really dig it or oh you thought this was pretty fun let's you know and it's always been like that kind of community 
Mm-hmm. Or I mean, I hope that I've like kind of passed that on to other people as well. Like, how would you say that like you, after like stumbling upon the exorcist late at night and then, you know, watching the X-Files as a teen growing up, like, where did you go from there? Like what kind of brought you down the path to look at like different subgenres and who are your people, I guess? Like, who would you call like, your horror fan? That's a, I, I don't know if I had one really honestly until I went to college um, because movies were a thing that I sort of enjoyed um, but didn't really know many other people that were into them. I mean, obviously I was a huge star Wars kid when there were the, uh, the remastered of the, you know, the re-releases in mm-hmm. the late nineties, I was, I was there and I was into it. So um, I, I, I am not being hyperbolic when I say those original trilogy movies, like I, there was a point in my life I could recite them from beginning to end all three of them because of how many times I've watched mm-hmm. them. So I, I had that, but it wasn't really until I went to college and actually started studying film that I made a couple friends that were like, oh, you guys are into this too. And just recognizing how, how that wasn't, not that it wasn't accepted, but people couldn't really relate to that. I remember um, a screenwriting workshop that I was in and I had a friend who was working on the screenplay that was very Lynchian in certain ways, even to the the extent that he didn't even know where the idea was going, but he'd have a dream and he'd incorporate it into his story. And I'd give him all this feedback. Like, I think you could do this. And I think you could do that. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the class was kind of like, I, I mean, this isn't really my thing. So I don't really know what to tell you. And it just, it, it was still kind of looked upon as an immature sort of thing. But the, the, mm-hmm. the one movie that I guess really got me into horror that I really kind of like first accepted as like, this is my thing was probably night of the living dead. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember stumbling upon that one afternoon and you know, that it was that scene where shortly after, you know, they've tried to gas up the truck and you know, they they're it's caught fire and the truck has exploded and you just see our main character kind of, uh, you know, played by Dwayne Jones. He's just there in this stark black and white photography at night, surrounded by these undead hordes. And I was just so like, what, what is this? I have no idea what's going on, but I am fascinated. And then becoming, you know, and and digging more into George Romero, I mean, inside in a way sort of feels like a spiritual successor to Day of the Dead for me in the sense that I watched and just like, this is a lot. I I was not prepared Mm -hmm. for this visceral viewing experience. And being so excited when, you know, Land of the Dead came out in 2005 and I went to the theater with a bunch of my friends and I came out, I was like, that was awesome. And everyone was like, that movie sucked. I don't know what you're talking about. And uh-huh. just and and just taking a, a class in college about postmodernism and just trying to explain to my professor how, yo, if you want to, if you want to see a movie about the deconstruction of the middle class you've got to check this movie out land of the dead yeah there's a lot of violence and people eating other people and stuff but like it really speaks to that and and he was very courteous he responded to my email it's like oh i'll check it out i i i mm-hmm. doubt he don't know if did. he ever did <laughs> yeah. and how did you start to make your way into like french horror like what was your introduction to really i would say more extreme horror but like specifically like the new wave of french horror it was initially um, there was some 
column on the AV Club years ago, I think it was, that was talking about the film Martyrs. Mm-hmm. And my roommate at the time and I, he's still a very good friend of mine. We talk movies all the time, but we had heard enough about this movie. Like, we gotta, we should probably check this out because people are talking about this. And so we got Netflix. That was back when I had the Netflix DVD plan. I got mm-hmm. my, my, my Martyrs DVD in the mail and we sat down and we watched it together. Um, I think he had to go somewhere so he didn't finish it and I just I was don't I finished it I'm like I hate that movie I used the word hate and I was not being hyperbolic I'm like I hate that movie um, and I just didn't understand why people could get into it and what the hype was all about and um, you know so new French extremity was always a thing I was aware of but I was like listen if that's if that's the kind of thing that they're putting out there I got no interest in it because it just seemed mean-spirited it seemed violent without any redemption behind it um so i was like i'm not really into this and then i do movies badly um if you know no one is familiar with it which i'm going to guess no one is familiar with it um i would basically what i what i did is uh, at the top of every month i talked to a, a guest who was a critic or a podcaster or just a film enthusiast about like a certain topic or theme and then they'd recommend me three movies that were most relevant to that topic. And then I'd watch them. And then the, the next three episodes would be me reviewing those. So, you know, it's a bit of a, of a, a difficult task in the sense of, hey, give me the three Martin Scorsese movies, which are most typifying of his work. Like, well, that's a difficult task, right? You know, um, but I would do subgenres every now and again, too. So one time I eventually I eventually got on like, you know what? I got a friend who's really big into new French extremity. Let me give it another chance. So his name was Tim Buell. He, he used to host a podcast called the golden briefcase. Mm-hmm. He came on and, and we talked about, and the, the three films he recommended were martyrs uh, inside and them. And I think it was, might've been in that order. Maybe mm-hmm. inside might've been first, but so I'm like, well, had to happen at some point. And so I dove back into martyrs, still hated it. Not as much. What hit um, you different the second time? The second time, I think it was just, I was a bit more used to, I don't want to say I was a bit more used to the violence, but it didn't upset me as much because by that point I'd seen a lot more stuff um, from, you know, uh, a lot more filmmakers and countries and like, okay, this is not as nauseating to me this time around, but I, I still thought it was a pretty nihilistic mean spirited movie. So when you would watch like say martyrs for the first time, in college what would you say before that your experience with like horror had been like what would have been like would that have been just so far off the deep end of extreme to almost be a different genre altogether yeah definitely it definitely felt like it was something very new like a a, an entirely different experience and i'm sure we'll get into it just in in later on in the sense of how france approaches horror and this kind of stuff versus america but it definitely felt like it was well you will never see this in america ever and i know they've you know they've since tried to do an american remake of martyrs and even i believe there's an american remake of inside Mm -hmm. um neither of which have been met with success or praise in, in any way shape or form so it really did feel like um, there was just an entirely different, a, a culture's entirely different approach to violence and depiction of violence and that kind of stuff. Because America likes to hold itself up as a sort of moral bastion of decency and, and that sort of thing. And, and like, well, there are certain things that we just won't indulge because that's not the American way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and so yeah just uh, i i remember specifically when i saw martyrs the scene which really kind of like i can't i can't do it with this movie was the one where it's just it's kind of like i believe it's a simple dolly shot of just the camera kind of moving from right to left and you just see that guard kind of over the girl and he's just punching mm-hmm. her like repeatedly and she's reaching out trying to get like help or to try and stop and he just keeps going and there's no real blood in that scene but there's just a especially with the camera movement just kind of a casual taking in of like yep this is just how right. it's going in this and, and like there there was such a i don't want to say an objectivity to it but there was such just a like i said a casual nature and just like how this is just this world without an open condemnation of it that i was mm-hmm. like where is the outrage here you know where where yeah. is where is the filmmaker very clearly stepping in and being like hey i know i've did all this but uh this is all real bad okay i just want you to know this is all real bad um and and i think actually if you watch the martyrs dvd you can watch it with an intro from pascal Lagier in which he sort of not apologizes for making the movie as much as he apologizes like i'm sorry for what you're about to go through yeah um so yeah well, there's just, a sense of there's a sense with martyrs in that last act there's a sense of the inevitable that this is just the way it is mm-hmm. there's never a moment you know what's mark you know what's different about inside and we'll get into when we talk about the movie with inside there are many moments where you think that like sarah is going to get away mm-hmm. like it doesn't feel that it's inevitable it feels like a much more traditional horror movie yeah where martyrs feels like a much different beast that there's never a moment in that movie where you feel like she's going to get away at the end. And if anything, the movie really like her release or her escape is her acceptance. Like when mm-hmm. she accepts what's going to happen, that ends up being like her victory and her means of escape. Yeah. Um, so when you first saw Inside, what struck you about it? I'd say it was for the show, it was for the podcast. So, yep. you know, now you're post-college You've been reviewing movies. You've seen a lot more things. You've been exposed to a lot more things. What was Inside like? Inside was... I, I, I don't want to say that I loved it, but I certainly was in a spot where I could accept it on its terms better, especially because Tim, you know, the same as, you know, before he came on to talk to me about the uh, new... I almost said the French New Wave. The new French Extremity... Um, previously he had been on to talk to me about South Korean revenge films as like a a subgenre as well. And um, I, you know, one film that I loved that he recommended me from that was I Saw the Devil, Mm -hmm. which is also a pretty violent movie, but also that has something behind it. Um, You know, and I don't want to say anything societal, but also just more emotional or psychological, that idea of the the hollow victory or the the cycle of violence and how violence perpetuates itself um and so recognizing like oh okay so there are these movies which can take this extreme violence and comment on it or use it to comment on something it's not just to you know it's not just to be a provocateur i mean listening Mm -hmm. to your 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 episode on on raw i know gaspar nui was mentioned a lot and he's a guy whose films i can never really watch or get into because i know he considered himself a provocateur and it's kind of like when someone wears that label so proudly i i have trouble respecting them because like oh so your your job is you just like upsetting people right and the implication for me is a lot more 
superficial and visceral instead of something which is below Mm -hmm. the surface and now i'm sure people could push back against that but also i'm sorry i'm not going to subject myself to a movie that has a nine minute rape sequence because Mm -hmm. never in your life can you justify to me that a rape sequence Mm -hmm. has to be one included in two nine minutes long right um but knowing that that there that there was uh, you know that you could comment on these sort of things i think also since since I had seen Inside, I'd also taken uh, Michael Haneke's Funny Games, which I know is a, a movie that people have a real problem with when it comes to being mean-spirited. But mm-hmm. just that idea of we're going to take extreme violence and use it almost as a tool. I mean, right. think of it sort of like, um, you know, screamo music. Like some people are like, oh, I can't stand this noise. Why do they have to scream? And it's like, well, just consider the screaming a different instrument or another mm-hmm. instrument in this kind of genre, basically. I think my problem with Haneke is always, especially with funny games, is he tries to have it both ways. Yeah. Like on one hand, he is putting out this piece of like ext- extremely violent, extremely upsetting, extremely nihilistic movie. Um, but at the same time, he's breaking the fourth wall to directly scold the audience for saying this is your fault. Like this is something that you're asking for. Um, And because you're asking for it, this is what I'm creating. And I just don't think you can have it both ways. I think that like the market for that, if that type of movie, if that kind of extremity didn't exist in a movie, that kind of upsettingness didn't think if there wasn't a market for it, directors wouldn't make it for one, but directors are kind of like creators also like creating that kind of, idea behind it and they're putting themselves and their own ideas to their work so you cannot have it both ways you can't say um i'm creating this movie for an audience how dare you audience ask for this kind of movie so that's yeah. just to me has always been my issue with uh Haneke, whether it's that i think with him i kind of tapped out around cachet okay. um i just found that movie like i'm like there's just there's no there there and i'm just not on on board um with someone that. like that. So yeah. I know for me, like inside was probably my, it was my sophomore foray into extreme French horror. I know that high tension would have been the first for me. And I have, I remember uh, my now dearly departed friend, Adam, like I know back in the mid two thousands, we had a horror movie club mm-hmm. where I had just moved back to Boston in the fall of 03 and we actually kicked my coming back and moving back off with like a night of watching cabin fever and having like a pancake party. And this would have been like, why are we doing like a pancake party? I'm like, just watch the movie. Mm. It will all make sense. Um, and then after that, at the time there were local message boards. Like before there was Reddit and Twitter, there were your local message boards. And (laughs) there was a really good Boston-based one for the punks and the artists and the comedians and the writers that we all were part of. (laughs) And I just remember, I'm like, hey, um, it's this Sunday night. Anyone who wants to come over, um, this is the address. We're going to like watch a couple horror movies, hang in our living room, you know, do a potluck, whatever. Just swing by at eight o'clock. And lo and behold, like a bunch of people started started to show up. And to this day, two of them remain like two of my closest, dearest friends, my friend Lindsay. And her husband, Tim, didn't come to that. But I had known Tim from before because I would go to like shows in his basement in his old apartment. Um, But Lindsay 
remains one of my dearest, not Lindsay who does the show, mm. uh, who I've actually never met face to face, her nor <laughs> Jerry, I've never seen them. Mm. But my friend Lindsay from Boston is one of the truly greatest people and people I love the most. So uh, my friend Chris, who I went on to start, so we'll talk about that in a second. But my friend Adam, who I had never hung out with at that point, but I had seen him at punk shows and I'm like, that guy is always dancing like a maniac. I don't <laughs> like, you know, come on, man, calm down. And that was just Adam, like one of the truly most beautiful, um, vibrant and amazing people I've ever met. Um, him coming to that, like kickstarted a friendship that lasted, you know, more than a decade until he passed away. Um, but I remember we were watching High Tension at his place and he paused it right before the big reveal and he went on a rant about without without <laughs> spoiling it how like what you're gonna see is gonna ruin it and he, ah and then he did <laughs> i can't watch that movie and not think of him in 2009 i started a site called all things horror mm -hmm. in august of that year and my friend chris who i'd met through the horror movie club joined on for that we would just write about whatever we wanted and at that time, I remember trying to expand like the stuff I would typically watch. And it was also the time that my wife and I were trying for our child. Like my wife is a planner. When she proposed to me, she proposed by taking out her day planner the day after we returned from visiting her family in England. It was my first <laughs> time seeing them. She's like, pick a Saturday in June. I'm like, well, we'll do this one. She's like, great. You know, like we'll book a place. And like, can I call my mother and tell her we're engaged? And I'm like, Sure. You know, I'm like, all right. I'm like, just sitting on the couch, I guess I'm getting married. Um, <laughs> you know, but she had planned, like when we decided it was time to try to have a kid, she was like, okay, well, I work in the school system. So if I get pregnant in October, I'll be able to take June, July and August off and be with the kid and then return to work. So we're going to try, this is when we're going to try. And she wrote in her day planner, you know, September for a start but ideally October. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, you know, we found out Halloween night, hey, you know, preggers, which is nice. Mm -hmm. um, but I am 99.9% .9 positive that the night our daughter was conceived was after watching Inside because we were both <laughs> so freaked out by it. At the time, we owned a, a garden condo and we were on the third floor of a building. Mm -hmm. And there were like three doors we had to get in to get in the front door and then our door and then like the balcony, which you really couldn't scale. But I went and locked, double locked the balcony door and locked the deadbolt in our front door of the <laughs> which I never do because this movie like upset and freaked me out to such an extent. And then, so it was really one of those things that like really it stuck with me mm -hmm. and after seeing it i'm like okay what else is there so i know that it wasn't high tension for me but watching inside now i want to see calvair now i want to see shaitan mm -hmm. now i want to see martyrs now i want to see ills uh, and it kick-started like this wave of like watching some of the best in you know, to be fair, like we've done four movies in this series. And I think we've done like four of the prime examples of what French horror has to offer. But, you know, we haven't done Claire Denise's 
um, trouble every day. Mm-hmm. We haven't been able to do ills. We didn't get to do shaitan. Um, we, we, although it's um, Belgium, it's really French adjacent. We didn't get to touch Calvaire. Mm-hmm. Um, Alleluia from the same director, um, which I think is fucking finished with Charlotte Ginsburg, which is so good. Alleluia mm-hmm. is phenomenal. And it's a movie I'd love to cover. So I feel like we've barely touched the surface of mm-hmm. what we could do. And I don't know when we're going to be able to kind of like broach this subject again, based mm-hmm. on uh, partly based on reaction and partly based on like, I know for me, as time has gone on, like I'm enjoying covering the more fun franchises. Like my heart feels way more into it. Like sure. this, I'll be honest with you got listeners as much as I appreciate what this movie is going for. This was a really hard watch. And it was actually a much harder watch for me the second time around. Agreed. I think for reasons we'll get into, like knowing that final scene was coming up and, but there were some specific things that I didn't catch the first time watching it that hit me this time in a way that really left me feeling gutted in a way that very few movies do. Um, so it's one of those, I'm happy to talk about this movie, but I think after that is going to go on a shelf and that shelf is probably not going to be looked at again for a very long time. So let's do it. Um, let's talk a little bit about the directors, Julian Marat. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the directors of Inside, Julian Mari and Alexandra Bastilio. I believe I'm pronouncing that correct. Um, this was their debut. They, I think one, I forget which one said, I have this idea for a horror movie, like a home invasion movie. Mm-hmm. They played around with it together. They tweaked the script. Um, and upon its release in 07, although it wasn't a box office hit, it was like a festival hit. It was critically acclaimed. I know that like Bloody Disgusting and Dread Central rated it amongst their best releases of 07. Um, calling it like one of the most visceral and disturbing horror movies that anyone, and they meant that in a praising way. Mm-hmm. So for a short time, this pair, they were kind of attached to a lot of different things that never came to fruition. In Oaks, they were attached to the remake, I'm oh, sorry, the sequel to Rob Zombie's Halloween. They were the pair that Dimension tapped to direct the remake after Zombie initially said, you know, I really don't want to return to this. I mean, I don't want to return to this world again. I'm pretty much done with it. And then when he decided, you know, if anyone's going to do it, it should be me. And, you know, listeners know, like I'm on the record, I am not a fan of Rob Zombie's Halloween. But two of us. I am ride or die for H2. I think that that is in the top third of the franchise. Um, yeah. yeah, I because it's not a Halloween movie. It's very much its own thing. Yeah, It's one of the few movies that tries to do something different. So they were removed from that. They were attached to the Hell, Hellraiser remake for a long while and then <laughs> dropped and then were like removed from it. So I don't think they've ever been able to match the success or the height of inside. And I guess we'll kind of dive into why as we kind of unpack this movie a bit. Um, But to me, it feels like there's not a lot of there there with this duo filmmakers that they are 
I think basically they go for shock value mm-hmm. and shock and awe for the sake of it without really having any big commentary on it. Um, it feels a lot like what a prepubescent boy thinks a good extreme movie would look like. <laughs> right. And it, it was released under like the Dimension Extreme label, which yeah. like dollars to donuts. If, if you saw that on a movie, you're like, well, this is going to be cheap shit, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, and I get that. And it's funny because, yeah, looking at not just what their output was like after Inside, but even, I mean, a lot of these, I, I, my brain keeps wanting to say French New Wave filmmakers. Um, yeah. New, but new French extremity filmmakers, like if you look a lot like at a lot of their output, especially what they put out in America, it's it, it, it ranges from outright bad to kind of glossed over like, eh, yeah, mm-hmm. fine, you don't really need yeah. to. And so I have asked this question internally a bunch. And I guess now is the first time I, I can voice it. Like when it comes to not just these two, but Pascal Logier or Xavier Jeans or um you know or or alexander aja is it aja or mm-hmm. aha i think it's aja that's how i've always pronounced okay. it um is it like the question is like are they actually really talented filmmakers or did they just kind of um jump on an opportunity and a and a, and a moment i mean mm-hmm. you know there you think of i mean we can get back to french new wave filmmakers like sure that that movement made a lot of filmmakers or, or made a lot of filmmakers like household names relatively household names but then mm-hmm. after the you know the so-called movement was done they were still working for decades after making critically acclaimed and like audience like mm-hmm. it loved films for a while but like you look at xavier Jeans, what did he follow up frontiers with the hitman so, adaptation right. you know um, but i would say like a movie like the divide which was like his american genre debut mm-hmm. which is a post-apocalyptic movie it's very much a bunker movie okay. um it takes place like inside like a nuclear fallout shelter after what potentially may have been like a nuclear war mm-hmm. and that's one of the questions it's almost like 10 cloverfield lane in that way um if i remember correctly and it's got a stellar cast it's actually a pretty tight little movie i actually mm-hmm. really like that one a lot okay. i think it was underseen um i don't think you can make a movie with the sk- skill and craft of an inside and a martyrs and um you know to me frontiers remains the best texas chainsaw massacre remake that mm-hmm. we've ever gotten I don't think you can make a movie with that level of competence and not be a good filmmaker. But I think what can happen is, especially in the case of like when you're making your American debut, mm-hmm. um, you all of a sudden have a lot more cons- restriction and constrictions of what is acceptable to show on screen. Because right. like, you know, it's not a secret, like the part of the problem with like the Martyrs remake and the Inside remake, and we'll touch briefly on the Inside remake, very briefly, <laughs> is it, any opportunity it has to really kind of like go over that line, like it steps back from it. Right. Um, and it becomes like a more sanitized and safer choice. So I don't think, you know, to me, the filmmaker that's had the most success in the United States is Asha 
because I think he kind of understands, like he kind of gets what the American sensibility is and what is acceptable. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I can work with this. And he makes, you know, like, does he make masterpieces? Like, no, absolutely not. But the Hills Have Eyes is a movie that like most people would say, actually, this is better than Craven's movie. I, um, I, I love I love The Hills Have Eyes and, and maybe this is sacrilegious. Mm-hmm. I've never even seen Craven's original The Hills Have Eyes. Still to this day, I have not yeah, seen it. It's, it's worth watching. Um, it's not the best thing ever, but it's worth watching. It's <laughs> um, definitely in his, you know, it's Craven still kind of working through some things. He's not quite... Mm-hmm quite where he's going to be like a decade later um piranha 3d he's like all right i know what i'm going for here um blood guts boobs with fear tongue firmly in cheek mm-hmm. and he really embraces that um brawl i thought was like really like l- not low expectations heading in but like it it's it was a solid b movie from start to finish that and again he knows exactly what he wants to do mm-hmm. and he can and it helped like boston's own like sean and michael rossman are responsible for that script and i think they wrote a terrific script uh and if they're listening i think they're two fantastic dudes mm-hmm. um and all to me like it like tarantino called that one of his favorite horror movies of the year because mm-hmm. he knows like he kind of gets like popcorn thrillers and popcorn horror better than most people. I mean, that's what really high tension is at the end of the day. Like high tension is just a really fucking bloody popcorn movie at the end of the day. Like it's not one of those movies where there's like with martyrs or frontiers, there's a lot going on under the surface in terms of like commentary and political. I could be wrong, but I just, I don't see it with high tension. Um, But to me with like Bastille and Murray, Levide and never gets a U.S. release. Like to this day, it's just sitting on like the Weinstein's shelf somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really curious. At one point, it was on YouTube, and for the whole oh. thing, and you could just and I have this thing where you can like download YouTube videos, and I just yeah. didn't do it, and I regret it because <laughs> I really want to see Levide. I know like, among the living when it premiered at the Fantasia Film Fest, people walked out of that in droves. Like this is horseshit. Um, and I've watched that movie a couple times and it's, I don't understand what would inspire people to walk out. Like to me, it's not nearly as extreme as inside is. Um, but there's not a lot, I guess like the most extreme thing about it is like with these filmmakers, like there are no sacred cows, mm-hmm. like the people that get injured and killed off in their movies are people that you would normally consider safe. Like, yeah there's a kid in among the living who comes like he's the bad. He's kind of like the Chris Chalmers from um, stand by me is the vibe he gives off, like coming from that shitty family background. Okay. At one point, his father like beats the shit out of him and you really feel for him. Mm-hmm. And then he's like killed off in a really gruesome, sad way. And you're like, these guys just don't care. Yeah. Um, they're Leatherface movie. Um which Jerry like Jerry Smith, our former co-host, is like that's his like favorite sequel in the whole series. And you know, I like it was five bucks on Blu-ray. I'm like, I don't remember really liking this when I watched it. It got released like not even direct to video, but like direct direct to direct TV, like that much of a niche. Um, and it has studio interference written all over it. 
Um, and there were a lot of reshoots on it. So it's kind of a compromised vision. But the stuff that works, I'm like, this is better than I remember. Um, but I still don't, again, and I think a lot of that is the interference. It just doesn't approach it. So, Yeah, and that was, I remember after seeing Inside for the first time and hearing they were attached to that movie. Because I, I think I'd, I'd seen it before leatherface came out or at least when mm -hmm. it was after it was done and there was it was kind of this this limbo of like what is happening with this movie and i was so excited for it because i'm like well if there's any filmmakers that are going to t tackle um the story of a guy who is literally a bloodthirsty like cannibal that kills people with, mm -hmm. that, with a with a chainsaw and who is not going and, and who are not going to be beholden to some type of implied American conservatism, like the, this is a wonderful choice. And then I never saw it. I didn't hear much about it. I heard it got dumped and people were like, this movie sucks. Mm -hmm. And so, so that, that tempered things for me a little bit. And I still haven't seen it to this day, but I, I am curious about it, especially knowing there is studio interference. A lot um, of it. But, so you can tell like there's studio interference, all their handprints are all over that movie. Yeah. Well, and there, there's no way it can be worse than that. Uh, that sequel that came out a few years ago that was 3D um, in which it, it tries to make us believe that it takes place 20 years after the original and yet there's a police officer with a smartphone like you gotta be fucking kidding me See, how dumb I thought is. I thought that movie was supposed to take place in modern times because like everything about the movie looks like the modern day mm -hmm. and I'm like you're supposed to make me believe that Alexandre Daddario is like 40 years old <laughs> like come on that doesn't work like they're driving modern cars. Like there's nothing about it that screams it was made in 1997 or 1993. Like 1993 has a very unique, very easy to replicate look to it. Um, it's not exactly a difficult time period if you want to do a period piece. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, that, you're right. Like the Texas Chainsaw, like 3D, is really one of the worst it's one of the worst movies. it's definitely not worse than that movie it is <laughs> to this day one of the worst movies i've ever seen in my whole fucking life so it's it's, it's like i mean it's it's so even even just that one fuck up of like you're trying to convince us this is 20 years later like who who greenlit this who thought this right. was a good idea and is it is it trey songs who's the Know, some some hip-hop artists that they're also mm -hmm. like yeah why not get this guy in here because he's apparently got audience appeal which even i was mm -hmm. like who the hell is this guy yeah it's but. yeah it's um it's to me like and out of the big four to me texas chainsaw is the best of the big four uh in terms of the impact it has in terms of its relevance to this day in terms of like what it's trying to go for and say but i gotta talk about like a flawed franchise like that is just one where the heights are incredibly like with Friday the 13th, like it doesn't have tremendous heights, but it also doesn't have really low lows. Like it's like a, like you said, like the first cheeseburger you ever ate. It's like a decent burger. Like, you know, there's no such thing as a truly terrible cheeseburger. Sure. You don't get, you know, a rare porterhouse steak, but at the same time, you don't get this like maggot infested mealworm. And to me, with like some of these Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, you get a maggot-infested mealworm far more than you get the porterhouse at that point. No, I, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Like, and I, I you know, 
I was not actually raised on Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street. I didn't watch those two series in their entirety until after I graduated college. Mm-hmm. Um, Halloween was always something that I, I had loved, but it, for me, it was always the first two. It was Carpenter's original and Nick Rosenthal's second one, which I mm-hmm. still I still really have a fondness for, even though I know people like Jerry hates that because of how it you know retconned Michael Myers' uh, story and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's funny, Texas Chainsaw, I can't remember the first time I saw it, but I've loved that original. I mean, I hell, I had a um, uh, a class in college called Essence of Cinema, in which my final paper was written on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre mm-hmm. as a postmodern masterpiece um, because of how it subverts the idea of a the family structure. You know, the family in this fam- in that film is actually they are the ones that you have to be afraid of and that you have to run away mm-hmm. from. The fact that it, you know, um, kind of uh, deconstructs sort of I don't want to say deconstruct sexuality, but you know. Leatherface fluctuates back and forth when he's got a, a man mask and he's got a woman mask and there's a point clearly where Sally's like please I'll do anything to get out of here and you kind of know what she is meaning but also they don't care because they're not interested in that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um, and also just how it you know it doesn't really have a happy ending like she escapes but the final shot is Leatherface swinging his chainsaw around just like yep this is gonna happen again yeah. and just like this, th- that was an insane movie. Also one of the few viewing experiences where I was physically uncomfortable watching it. Mm-hmm. Like just there, there's been so many stories of the, the production of that, especially hot Austin, Texas summer, hundred degrees, all that is real meat that is just going bad under these mm-hmm. lights in this heat. And you get that sense. And like the Texas chainsaw remake that Marcus Nispel did tries to duplicate that grimy feel to it but it feels so manufactured and not authentic yeah and i don't know there's something about it that's just like this is this is a movie that you kind of want to escape from which was um, uh, a feeling later duplicated last year or two years ago when i saw the lighthouse in theaters i'm like please Mm -hmm. get me out of here i can't stand this (laughs) i'm trying to think of the last movie that did that to me you know, and my go-to might be like the tribe, but I remember seeing the tribe and thinking that that was a black comedy and nobody else in the audience <laughs> felt that way. So as I'm sitting there with my friend Andrea and eating a popcorn and we're both kind of laughing, everyone is looking at us like you are horrid, horrid people. So, um, all right. So getting into the movie now, getting into inside, like this movie starts with a... And it goes to here in a, in a way that to me feels very manipulative. Um, a CGI baby. Yeah. Right. So you have a CGI baby kind of floating around in the womb. And my God, like low budget 2007 CGI. <laughs> I'd is forgotten about that. Yeah. Certainly something to behold. But, and, but I will say like on the rewatch, knowing that what was coming up, like it definitely affected me. So you mm-hmm. see the car crash that is the inciting incident of this movie from the perspective perspective of the fetus in the womb. And it's to me like a really shocking thing. Like it's really now I feel like later on throughout the movie, when you keep going back and forth to the shots of like Sarah's fetus and Sarah's stomach that to me felt manipulative. Like you don't need to remind me that there's also a baby in danger here. And that struck me as like a piece of conservatism that I just didn't really need in my movie. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, um, the, the first time 
uh, you know, before the car crash happens, it certainly is understandable. Uh, but yeah, then especially there are there's shots later on when a, when she's getting hit, and specifically, sorry if I'm jumping ahead, but when the the police officer kind of hits her in the stomach with the baton, mm-hmm. we cut back to her, and and that's when that's one of those moments where it feels like really really need it's like guys you don't need to do this we've been through so much yeah we know the the impact both literal and emotional you don't need to show us that you don't need to remind us like i mean Mm -hmm. efficiency of shots here people absolutely yeah and to me so movie star you get our introduction to sarah after this where like her and her now her husband is like dead next to her and it's just this our introduction to her and you go quickly, this movie at 80, like 82 minutes of action. There's really very little fat on this movie. It just kind of like, and it's it's set up very quickly here where Sarah, when we see her at her, at her um, OBGYN, she's still traumatized. She's very cold. She's aloof. She's sullen. She's very much suffering the effects of post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. disorder at this point which who wouldn't be um sure. and she's also faced with this prospect of raising this child without her partner and it being like a constant reminder so we see here i think it's christmas eve or the day before christmas eve yeah, she's christmas there eve, believe, yeah. told her like the next day you're going to come back and we're going to induce labor you're at the point where like it needs to come out at this point and when you see sarah like there's that moment where the nurse like sits down next to her and just starts like launching into this tale about, Oh, you know, like instead of offering any comfort, the nurse is like, the, it's probably your first baby. And the first baby is going to be really painful by the way. Like it's going to hurt like a motherfucker. I've had four of them. And I then could... the nurse like lights up a cigarette, in front, which is <laughs> the second movie in a row now where like a healthcare <laughs> professional is, I th- I think if I'm remembering correctly, the the nurse describes it as murder, yes, uh, which, which is you know I guess a bit of foreshadowing, level, yeah, a fun little joke and like wink wink nudge nudge foreshadowing what's to come. But then also like it's clear already this woman is really at the best she's hesitant about having this child, but more realistically she probably does not want to have this child. Right, and this woman is basically telling like, yeah everything that you hate about this, it's going to get even worse. And then, yeah. yeah, just lights up a cigarette. Like, you've got to be kidding me, lady. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you doing here? Um, yeah. And, and I think it's, you, you said, you, you said it, like, there's really no fat, like within the first 10, 15 minutes, we're introduced to basically all the characters we are going to be mm-hmm. interacting with through the rest of the movie. I mean, we have, you know, the, we have her mom, we have her editor in chief, we have the house invader, um, and then we have, you know, the, the police. And so it's kind of like all the chess pieces are, are laid out and then they kind of like let it go. So it, it really it really is a very yeah. efficient uh, script. I have to give it credit yeah. for that. And you see, you know, I love Sarah's response to this nurse where the nurse is like, everyone here is full of shit after she's reprimanded for, you know, smoking in the hospital waiting room, which, you know, you know, you know you're not supposed to do that. Like <laughs> Sarah's response is simply to look at her and just say, what and the woman kind of goes off and i love it to me like i it's hard not to fall in love with sarah in that moment it's just a badass little moment 
we meet Sarah's mom right thereafter. And mom is like trying to help out and offer comfort and offer support. But Sarah, like a lot of trauma victims, when they're still kind of in the throes of that initial stage of it, she is not in a position where she can accept any help because she's still in a place where she's just trying to process what has happened to her and what it's going to mean to have to like pick up the pieces to move forward. So she's just so cold. And it, I think that's one of the things that like kind of was a little bit heartbreaking rewatching this movie, knowing what's going to happen. Um, she is just like, I just want to be alone. You need to go. I just, I don't need you. Just leave me alone right now. And goes off. She meets with her editor in chief, which is a photographer for a paper. Mm. The editor is the person who's going to bring her to the hospital. Uh, but he plays like, to me, he plays like a father figure. I never took like his, you know, and maybe I'm naive. I never took his interest in anything like untoward towards Sarah. Mm-hmm. He very much played the role of like a concerned person out for her well being. And, you know, in fact, for me, the first time I saw this movie, and even again rewatching it before I was reminded, like, I, I assumed he was the father until it was mm-hmm. explicitly told that he was the editor in chief, sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah so I, I, I know that um, I, I've written some quotes from it, I guess, but Alexandra West's uh, book, you know, Films of the New French Extremity, Visceral Horror, and National Identity, which I know you guys have talked about before mm-hmm. in this, but I think she if I remember correctly in her section about inside, she implies or, or writes that the implication between the two of them is that it's, it's romantic or sexual. I'm like, mm-hmm. and I, I never, I never really saw that really. Um, no. Or if nothing else, maybe he might be pining after her and she is not interested in any way. No, shape, or form. I don't think she, yeah, it's definitely not reciprocated on her end. If anything, um, if anything in this reading, I saw like the editor having an interest in who he thought was, Sarah's mom like there's that moment when he goes to touch her arm Mm -hmm. and she pulls away um but I did not you know kind of get that reading I thought he might have been like an overly involved boss at that point but I mean there is a very human part of and you know I tend to be someone that like looks for like the best in people um there's a very human part of us that if you see like a co-worker who is suffering you want a, your immediate impulse is like, what can I do to help them out? Absolutely. And sometimes I think we make an assumption, like we know what's going to be best for them when we don't, when we really need to kind of hear it from them and rely on them, like what's going to be best. So um, we're introduced after like, she has a horrific nightmare where the baby comes out of her throat and like a really horrific moment. Um, there's that knock on the door and we're introduced to Beatrice Dahl as simply in this movie, the woman. Mm-hmm. And can we just like take a minute to talk about Beatrice Dahl, <laughs> who I absolutely fell in love with after watching this movie. <laughs> Oddly enough, um, she is perfect in this movie. She's really badass um i was kind of reminded of a of sort of a, a dark uh gothic badass famke jansen rewatching it the mm-hmm. second time um you know give me uh yeah give me beatrice Dahl as as a as the dark phoenix mm-hmm. and i think I, that would have been a much better movie mm-hmm. um but yeah I, I i know i know i mean nothing really about her uh about any of her her past any other films that she had been in but yeah she's how she comes across so menacing right away. And it's even just that voice that you hear through the door and how it's a bit more deeper in tone. And just when it's like a, mm-hmm. you know, what she say? Like 
Sarah, your husband's not home. Yeah, and he's just, dead. He's not just, sleeping. He's dead. Yeah, and she she just she knows, and just how she, especially when you see her in shadows outside the door, she is this like menacing, lumbering figure. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was hard not to imagine that scene when or that shot when Sarah wakes up on the couch, and you just see her kind of like ghostly white face in the background reminding of just like michael myers and like the shape and that looming form and just really feeling like and and i like that it it, the movie doesn't show us how she got in the house what's important is just that she is now she is there house yeah Yeah. so getting back to doll first for a mix i find her just a fascinating woman she's (laughs) someone who like at age 14 like left home after seeing the dead kennedys play like she went to a dead kennedy show started to hang with jello biafra and then it's like I don't want to live at home anymore. I want to go on the road and I just want to be a free spirit. Um, she was not an actress by nature. Like she had done some modeling uh, and she was discovered um, basically by a photographer and then offered like her breakout role was a 1986 movie, um, French movie, Betty Blue, um, where she plays like, not a psychopath but i think someone with some severe um some severe personality disorder issues and it's like a very like supercharged sexual movie it was actually nominated for an oscar for best uh foreign language movie that year um she played a um vampire in claire dennis's like trouble every day like an uh, early movie in the french new wave movement but she's someone that like still to this day considers herself like a punk at heart um she has been arrested for like heroin and cocaine possession which cost her a chance to make her way to the states when she wanted to start her you know kickstart a career in hollywood with the embassy worker there said well you don't seem like the kind of person we would want to have in the united states she just like (laughs) hauled off and slapped him in the face um (laughs) She was like, you wouldn't talk to your mother like this. You're certainly not going to talk to me like this. She just like gives, she's a woman that gives zero fucks whatsoever. Um, She's left like this trail of like every man that she's ever been with just like either just pines for her or winds up dead. It seems like just like can't live with her, can't live without her type of deal. Um, (laughs) And I'm trying to think what was the last thing. It was just like so much in her. Like she's this true, like iconoclastic free spirit. And she's like talked about like, yeah, I didn't make it in Hollywood. Big deal. I work here all the time and I get to do what I want when I want. I get to, she's very outspoken about a number of different things. She's mouth has gotten her in some trouble for some of her views. Um, she's talked openly about working in a mortuary as a young woman and like, eating the ear off a cadaver and being like, well, what was he? He couldn't complain about it. Like big deal, you know? So I love her in this. Like, I am just like, just so drawn to her in this. And you're right. Like this, just something about home invasion movies that because you're supposed to feel safe. You're supposed to feel like nothing can get you in your home. And you're right. Like when she's, you never see her get in. Like the police lock Sarah in. You never see her slip in. She just finds a way. Mm-hmm. And there, there's something interesting too that I, I don't, I, I don't think it's, it's the most brilliant and clever thing. But 
home invasion movies up until this point had really almost always been it's a man trying to break in to get to a woman for some reason mm-hmm. um and to have it instead here's a woman trying to break in it, it, it's once again it's not like let's consider this the most brilliant groundbreaking film ever but it's that that is an interesting take too in the sense of it, it was a deliberate choice on the filmmaker's part to be like well it could have been the, the father of you know this this dead baby trying to break in instead mm-hmm. to try and get revenge on you know not only did you take my baby away you killed my wife as well yeah. um but instead it's more um no it, it's a you know we're we're gonna have a, a woman uh who is who is it who is that instead which i think is is interesting because it's not something that you would typically expect and it's not a huge reveal but it certainly is especially when seeing her in shadow it's sort of like it still leaves you with a question of who is this and then when you mm-hmm. find out it's a woman especially because you know if you if you haven't if you're not clever like like i am not clever and are not good with kind of guessing reveals or twists and then at the end like oh shit that's who it is like okay that's mm-hmm. that's a that's a pretty decent reveal guys what well done yeah, I will say this, like the, the problem I have with it, and I know that like Marie and Bastille were saying like exactly that, like we wanted to have like a female killer because that's so rarely done mm-hmm. or it's, you know, not rarely done. But if you look at the percentages of like male killer versus female killer, it's heavily skewed towards the male side. But I think like the one issue I have is like the motive, like the motive for the woman is like, I lost my baby. And I think like there's like, too often there is this tendency to define women by motherhood and especially when it comes to art and cinema overall like well what makes this person a woman like what would be her motivation and her revenge well she must have lost her baby at that point i think that's one of the things that kind of makes it lessens it or cheapens it a little bit for me because once again that's what you're kind of reducing like womanhood to like, it has to be about motherhood. Sure. Um, if you're not a mother, then you're really not a, a real woman at that point. So mm-hmm. that I think you could, it's just as interesting a movie. If this woman is after like a nine month pregnant woman who is for all intents and purposes, kind of helpless mm-hmm. um, without that being like the motivation that kind of drives it. So I would have liked to have seen something else there. And that's valid. I totally get that. Uh, and I totally understand that. And, and I'm, I'm not going to really push back too hard on that. Cause that's once again, you're, you, you know, it's, it's two guys who wrote and directed this mm-hmm. movie and who are, you know, who are telling the story of, of two women. And so it's like, there, there's going to be a level there where it's like, yeah, they're playing into mm-hmm. stereotypes that they are familiar with and, and their subversion is not as clever as they think it is. The, yeah. the reason that I'm, I guess in this context of this film specifically willing to forgive it a little bit more is setting up the dichotomy between her as the home invader and what she wants and sarah who is i think i mentioned it a little bit but i generally don't think that she even wants to have yeah let's i definitely want to touch on that let's put a pin on just that until we get to that part i think that we are gonna we're for sure gonna get to that and like Mm -hmm. the times i've seen this like how i've come away with different reactions and what i think the filmmakers are going for there um you had talked a little bit about in your notes here like um subverting the trope on the suburbs like you said going back to halloween um and we had talked about this in our frontiers episode like 
this movie is set against the suburban riots that were going down in the suburbs of Paris in 2005 after the uh, murder by the police of two young French uh, immigrant boys who uh, there was a case of mistaken identity and they rather than be apprehended, um, they were murdered by the police, which couched off a wave of rioting by the um, heavily Muslim population in the Paris suburbs, you know, which had really had been building for years due to a lot of economic unrest and redlining and just like a lot of things that were in prejudice that had been going on. So this movie is also set up against that. And again, to me, it sets up like why there's like so little police that they can help, you know, Sarah out and maybe stay with her in this type of situation. Um, but once again, it just, it, it's that fear of the unknown, that fear of like there's someone or something that is different from us um, that really propels this movie's uh, plot and action going forward. Yeah, I, I mean, wh- that was one of the great things that I loved about Halloween when I first saw it was for a, a long time, even after college, I lived on a street that, you know, it could have been that same street in Haddonfield where the Strodes lived. And so there was this this weird kind of, I can't even call it escapism, but more immersion mm-hmm. too of like, if I turned on Halloween and turned the lights off, I could pretend that Michael Myers was outside mm-hmm. on my street, that kind of thing. And just that idea of how, yeah, um, you, how the suburbs have always, or at least they developed as a way to kind of like, you know, to escape from urban environments. I mean, even here in America, like the white flight, that idea of like, we are getting out because we don't like how the city is changing and we need our own space. And by we and changing, I of course mean white people and Mm non-white people kind of moving in. And so so that idea of like, here's a safe space that we can escape to where once we lock our doors, everything is fine. And then having like an entire movement or films where it's like, no, you are, you are equally as unsafe here as you are anywhere. In exactly. fact, the fact that you're in a place where you are isolated, that you are removed from community, where you are removed from neighbors, from upstairs, downstairs, left or right, whatever, makes you more at risk mm-hmm. and, and, and makes it even scarier. And, and that was, yeah. that was something that was amazing to me. And even, yeah, with, with the, I, I mean, the, these, the writers, directors have said that they were not intending to make a political film. And, and so, you know, there's, there's some nice background and some subtext, but the movie doesn't really del- uh, deal with that directly. Mm-hmm. But just that idea of like, yeah, the threat, it's out there. It's in the city. We're safe. We're safe here. Um, and it turns out, right. no, she's not. And not only that, but, you know, the, the, the person that the, police in this universe codify as the threat a young muslim guy is actually probably the most innocent character in this entire movie Mm -hmm. and you know he keeps saying if i was if i was out to riot why would i take my id with me right when when he's brought inside and sees the violence he's dry heaving he's like he is not a violent person he is not a criminal he is but he has been captured because of how he fits a certain demographic And I think the other thing too is like Sarah a couple point times in the movie when she describes the riots because she's looking forward to kind of getting back out there as a photographer and like shooting them like A, it means money for her, but B, it's also exciting, you know, like for her to do this, like she's getting like a visceral 
thrill from it. And she's like, it's just a bunch of boys that are lighting cars on fire. Like it's not really serious. Um, but the reality is like, even if that's the case, it has caused this chain reaction, which has left her vulnerable. Like the streets are empty. There's no police presence. There's no one there that can offer like any sort of protection. And it's left her isolated, you know, and I know this takes place on Christmas Eve and it's, you know, inside to me is not so much like a Christmas horror movie. It just happens <laughs> to take, there's like really nothing about it except for they comment on it that marks it as a Christmas movie. Um, except that it like gives the reason for the neighborhood to be deserted as people go and visit their families. Yeah. Um, and it's left her in this really vulnerable position, you know, is seen by like, again, the positioning of like the woman poised over her with those shears is just such a remarkable mm-hmm. image. So this movie, it shifts. It goes from this <laughs> really, well, actually, before we do that, like you see Sarah, like when she is confronted by the woman, she manages to like hold her off and then she pulls herself up in like a bathroom. So she basically escapes her own womb that she can now not get out of. Like this person cannot get in but unfortunately for Sarah, neither can she get out of it at this point. Um, and what really struck me on this watch is just how the lighting, it goes from like really dark and being imbued in shadow and any lights are these like kind of soft yellow glows to this really harsh, sterile lighting that hurts to look at. Yeah, and it, it does mimic that idea of, of you know, escaping uh you know escaping a womb going from the womb to to outside mm-hmm. and and yeah th- there's it is it's the same dp that shot um frontiers as as who shot mm-hmm. um uh inside and i'm i'm going to quote from alexander west's uh, book about this but according to the, to the directors we always wanted to show the worst thing you can imagine but in the best way possible mm-hmm. so we didn't want to use shaky cam and we always wanted a structured yeah. way to direct so there really is a movement and they, they say they were in early conversations with the DP as to how they could really mimic that, that journey and that movement. And it's, it's something that's very subtle. It was certainly not something I noticed uh, upon first mm-hmm. watching, but was kind of like, Oh yeah, yeah, I see, I see what they're going. And it's also, you know, in once again, in with foreshadowing, like, yeah, the, the only way that really she could get into this bathroom, the woman could get into the bathroom or for Sarah to get out is violently. Yeah. You know, and this is a movie that does linger on violence. This is a movie that, you know, they are not afraid to show you the after effects of every attack of the woman on Sarah. And you see her, the physicality of these attacks is just brutal. And you just see the physical and emotional toll. I think, uh, you know, as much as like, I'm quick to compliment uh, Beatrice Dahl in this movie is the woman uh, Alyssa Paradis as Sarah gets deserves also like every bit of praise that she oh, can yeah. for this movie because like she is it just is put through the ringer in this movie and it really shows and and there's also an, an interesting development in how her character goes too from being the one who is scared and trapped inside the bathroom to ultimately being the you know the woman that fights back as well mm-hmm. and and just and it, it's strange or on purpose however you want to look at it but the more 
covered in blood and injured she gets the more bold that she gets i mean by the yeah. time she's in the kitchen and she has you know and she takes the 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 spray to the lighter when when the woman's trying to light the cigarette and burns her face she's just covered in blood and that's when and that's when she's fighting back and, and doesn't yeah. and you know seems to not really have you know anything that stops her either i mean i i'd forgotten she gets smacked over the face with a toaster in yeah. this and just like and how is she still getting up after that and mm-hmm. um yeah and so she has she has a journey too of like once she gets outside of the womb how she then is also like reborn i guess if, yeah. if you really wanted to 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 be very on the nose about it mm-hmm. i mean she definitely and we'll get to that in a bit but she definitely hits that like no fucks to give stage like it, it really is what it boils down to so this movie like there's like the first third of this movie to me is just really tight cat and mouse violent thriller where it's you feel like it's gonna very much just gonna be this back and forth between sarah and the woman but it shifts in that second act where it goes to this hyper violent probably one of the most violent slasher movies i have ever seen in my life yeah and what's the I would, I'm sorry, I didn't. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, no, no. I mean, what's different about it is usually in a slasher movie, your killer stalks his prey, and they're completely unaware that the killer is in the picture somewhere until there's a chase. What's different about this movie is basically like every ten minutes, this fresh wave of like victims just <laughs> shows up unannounced. You have like the boss comes in, then Sarah's mother comes in. Then the first wave of cops enters the picture. Then the next wave of cops. And it's just like almost like clockwork. It's like an assembly line of victims that is like <laughs> there for the woman. And I think in like it's so the gore and the bloodshed in this movie is so ridiculously over the top <laughs> that even a moment like at one point, Sarah. Sarah's mother shows up. She rushes upstairs to find her daughter. She doesn't really call out at all. She goes to open the bathroom door and Sarah, not knowing who it is, stabs her mother through the neck with a, is that a knitting needle? I think is what. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So she basically puts a knitting needle through her mother's neck. And the mom then like wanders down the hall with gouts of blood, just spraying it. (laughs) Spraying all over the walls. Yeah. No, no real a concerted effort to to bandage herself or cover mm-hmm. it up, but just more instead, like let me walk down the hallway mm-hmm. to bathe the walls in my blood. It looks wonderful. I don't know, like uh, to be, I have never been stabbed through the neck, let alone stabbed through the neck so hard that like I have holes <laughs> on both sides. So I don't necessarily know. I would like to think my self preservation instinct would kick in. But I could imagine being in so much shock that I would also just like stumble down the hall to my death. Um, and, <laughs> you know, it feels like it should be this really heartbreaking scene. And in some ways it is. But it's also so ridiculously gory that you cannot help but um, laugh at it at the same time. Well, for me, the watching this movie for the first time, um, what what really cued me into how what this film was going to be was up until that point was still like okay this is this is pretty gory but this is still something that i'm you know things that i'm relatively used to seeing it was when the one police officer finally comes up to the bathroom and opens the door 
and they make a very concerted effort to show his face getting blown apart that yes. I was like oh shit this is the kind of movie that mm-hmm. we're in for and that's yes. just like and then it's just, I can't even say it's all downhill from there as much as just like that's that's kind of plateaued that's par for the course from now on after that yeah and it's like just like syrupy goo that explodes <laughs> all over Sarah and again like every in well what happens like immediately thereafter like another group of cops show up before the woman can finish her off. Like it's almost like a Tom and Jerry car. It's like if Itchy and Scratchy were um, from The Simpsons were like <laughs> two women, like they would be the women in this movie. Like it's like a real life Itchy and Scratchy movie. The level of like viscera and violence that you see here in this movie. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, There's also a level with these waves of people. There's also kind of a level of I've, I've said this before, but maybe mean spiritedness in the sense of they keep introducing you and Sarah to the possibilities of hope and escape yes. only to rob that, of, you know, from you and from Sarah literally mm-hmm. minutes after. Like, it's not as though one cop hangs around for 10 minutes. It's like they yeah. come in, they're around for a few minutes, and then they are brutally murdered. Yeah. There is a great cat and mouse thriller that came out last year called Alone um that does something similar except it feels like every time our victim nearly gets away and it's pulled out from under her she at least gets like a half a step closer to escape Mm. um and to the point where by the climax of that movie she's positioned herself where even if she doesn't escape there will be repercussions for the person who does her in um, that they will actually get their comeuppance at that point. Basil, she always makes these really smart decisions mm-hmm. that propel her a little bit closer, um, where this one feels very much like Bastille and Marty um, are pulling the football up at every given any given moment. Um, and you have a thing here, and I know we have it for the ending, but I think maybe not. What is this quote you have for Murray Bastilio? about like him and alex's alexandra's like worldview on yeah filmmaking yeah it's um i mean and just because you you wrote the note the ending it's too horrific for me now and i i think that was their intention the entire time i mean there's a quote in alexandra west book where they kind of talk about how French cinema is not so much done for entertainment you know and, and just an entertaining movie will often get torn to bits and you have to be you know, you have to be doing something artistic or have a different approach to it. And their approach was basically just bleakness and darkness about society. Yeah, what they said Mm -hmm. was, for Alex and me, we have a dark vision of life. We prefer living at night. We are night birds. We don't trust the future. What we see in life despairs us. So we don't want to tell happy stories with happy endings because that's not how we see life. And And I read that and I'm like, this is the most edgelord <laughs> you know, fucking high school, you know, like you can't handle my darkness, you know, because then you see these two dudes and it's these two preppy dudes, you know, it's two like, you know, two guys that look like they'd be like swigging natty light at the, at the, you know, local fraternity, basically. So right. I just think like this is just edgelord bullshit as far as, you know, I, I'm reminded a bit of a, uh... 
this is a weird correlation, but hang with me. Um, my wife and I recently watched the Snyder Cut, as I'm sure many watching people it did. right now. Yeah, I'm watching. I've watched the first two parts of it so far. Yeah. Okay. Um, you're in for an eternity. Yes. Uh, but and and it, it's it's funny. My my wife works in a, in a in a film school, and so she kind of said pretty early on, like th- this movie feels like if you gave an undergrad unlimited budget to make a movie and just this mm. idea of machismo and cool and what what is what is going mm-hmm. to get people's attention and what's going to be telling a visually interesting story yeah. but yet a completely soulless non-emotional story like you don't you don't know like if if i had read um that this film was you know the genesis of it was one of these guys was like I found out my wife was pregnant and I was terrified at the idea mm-hmm. of fatherhood and of pregnancy because as, as someone who does not currently have a, a, a child, I, I at least recognize that like the birth process is visceral and can be pretty gross. And we as American culture don't deal with that or depict mm-hmm. that very often. Like there is a kind of a sanctity to birth and I was raised in an evangelical society where it was basically a, a child is a gift from God, is a blessing. There is nothing wrong and nothing bad about having a child. Mm. And that includes physically and emotionally. If you are depressed after having a child, you need to pray about it because that's your problem mm-hmm. kind of a thing. So if you told me this movie was from a guy... But you like, want to be clear, that's not the case. We just No, that... that okay. That is that is complete yes. horseshit. Um, yeah. uh, evangelical uh, evangelicalism is an, an, quite a destructive force. Yes. Um, and so, if this was a movie where a guy was like, "My wife got pregnant," and all of a sudden I was so terrified about just like, you know, body horror and how things are changing, and just like then I could kind of be like, "Okay, there's a, a different level to this movie." But yeah, it's just it, it does really kind of seem like on on second viewing, it's mm-hmm. two guys are like how can we make people squirm yeah it to me and that gets back to what i said like a while back about this being like a prepubescent boys idea of like what's cool Mm -hmm. um now this just happened to be like two very talented filmmaking prepubescent boys and my thing with like the snyder cut like i'm two chapters into what like six chapters so six chapters in an epilogue yeah, I just watched like the Age of Heroes is what I just I'm, I'm doing it a chapter at a time because I'm okay. not going to do four hours in one sitting. Like, I just don't have time for that. <laughs> yeah. And I don't like I appreciate Zack Snyder as a very his own style. Like you can tell his movie. And you know what? I think we do need more of it. Um I wish he knew what colors were or liked colors. Um I think that he's someone that fundamentally misunderstands the Superman character, like that character's ethos. And to me, that's very difficult when that's like the linchpin of your universe. But I will say this, like the two things, the two parts I've watched so far, I've shockingly saying this, I've thoroughly enjoyed them. And it stuns me to say that because I thought like, I'll know. And I think maybe it, again, separating the art from the fandom that inspires it um you know but all that being said like i think he misunderstands like what makes like you know and again i read this quote today like why he thinks it's okay for like batman to kill and it's like no like you're fundamentally misunderstanding what makes this character so great despite all the other things you get right about it 
Um, the, so, the, way, the way that I, sorry, I, I keep, no, it's okay. I keep interrupting you the, uh, and then addressing that I interrupt you and then move on to talk anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the way that I described it, because uh, James and I, my co-host uh, on Cast of Cthulhu, we were talking about it the, the other day. Um, actually, if you if you listen to our uh, our recently published episode on the mm-hmm. endless, we we spend a, a a good amount of time talking about the Snyder Cut. But mm-hmm. the way that that I described it was sort of like it's it's almost as though he's responding to superheroes in a post nine eleven world, but like twenty years too late. Yeah, in a way, it's sort of like yeah, okay, this was you were maybe you maybe had something to say here 10, 11 years ago, but mm-hmm. now your story your approach your attitude in a world Mm -hmm. where things are shitty enough already and where we need not need need is a strong word but where a lot of us are looking for escapism for joy for humor the fact that you were so passionate Mm -hmm. about this story is kind of weird he positions spider positions how we're supposed to look at superman similar to the way the Marvel universe positions, how we're supposed to look at Captain America. Yeah. Which is odd because to me, like Captain America and Batman are the two most analogous characters, I guess, but whatever. Um, But you, he does that, but he does like, we're supposed to feel like Superman is this like beacon of hope and light Mm -hmm. and represents the, if not the best in all of us, like what we can overcome. But yet you don't, get that in his fundamental like reading of how he portrays like the Superman character and which is a bummer because like you have like a a once in a generation Superman performance or super like a guy Henry Cavill who really I think can embody that character so well it's all you know probably the best since like since um oh my god how much Thank you. Since Christopher <laughs> Reeve like donned the tights, right? Yeah. Um, and you have that and you've just like kind of like, you've kind of squandered it at that point. And it's just sad. <laughs> it's really, but I will say like, and I, this has been a, our segue um, into the Snyder Cut because I just can't seem to escape it. Like I'm shocked with like how much I'm enjoying it so far, especially his readings of like, I really like his Bruce Wayne. I really like his Aquaman. I really like his Wonder Woman. Um, he gets like so many things right. Um, and and I'll, I'll give it to the, the first two. I was, I was like, okay, I'm on board. And then mm-hmm. I, I won't say it quickly falls apart after that. It takes a long time for it to fall apart, but it does fall apart. I think anything for four hours, like it's just, you're just, you know, yeah, and- it's no longer a movie. It is an experience. <laughs> And, and for a guy who so forcefully and kind of crassly defended his depiction of Batman mm-hmm. um, makes kind of a useless Batman. Uh, yeah. You know, I know you got most of the movie ahead of you, but um, he doesn't do a whole lot. Yeah. That's, that's a bummer. But I just think that like he said that if he were to continue, it would be a five part trilogy. And I think <laughs> that that pretty much sums up everything you need to know <laughs> right there it's a five-part trilogy it's like that's not math that's not how math works okay getting back to this you have some stuff here and we talked about how like it's not a christmas movie yeah um but you had made some interesting kind of like comparisons or inversions of like 
the biblical story of Jesus's birth. So I'm interested to hear that here. Yeah, and uh, I want to make two things clear. One, I didn't notice this really until the second time around. And two, I, I, I'm not even going to say that any of this was intentional because mm-hmm. this seems too deep for these two guys. But yeah, I, I was kind of struck and, and, you know, getting back to how, how kind of bro these guys are. And I'm sure, you, you know, there's a troll out there who's like, oh, my favorite Christmas movie is Inside because he wants to, you know, like. Oh, I got a message about that. I got like, <laughs> my second favorite Christmas horror movie. I'm like, uh. <laughs> yeah, it's like after be, because now it now it's too it's too cliche to say that your favorite Christmas movies are either Die Hard or Batman Returns. So someone's like, fine, inside, and it's like, okay, I can't talk. Yeah, you anymore. could be really you say Shaitan because Shaitan is a straight up Christmas movie. Okay, fair enough. Um, but yeah, it, it just kind of struck me because like you you know. And, and you mentioned it, the, the reason they probably set this around the Christmas holiday was more just so it, it makes sense why no one's around and why, mm-hmm. the, and you know, what the police are occupied with that and with the riots that are going on. But yeah, we have, um, you know, a baby that's supposed to be born on Christmas Day. Um, this baby has no father figure, you know, figuratively, you know, and for Christ, obviously, it was because it was an immaculate conception. But for this one, uh, the father is dead. Um their ho- her house number is house number 666 uh which is the f- the film doesn't draw attention to but mm-hmm. if you pay attention you notice and that's in traditionally you know the the mark of the beast mm-hmm. uh the satanic mark whatever you want to call it um in the bible you know this birth is heralded and celebrated there are angels talking about it shepherds come by to party wise men show up you got animals you got all these things and, and like you know to celebrate the birth of this baby and here she's isolated and by choice she doesn't want to be around people um and you know and and perhaps i don't know if we want to talk about this now but even like there's the hints that this baby is not even wanted by her yeah now's a good time to let's do that um let let me just finish these these two points because also you know the birth of christ was supposed to signify the bringing of light and hope Mm -hmm. and you know a symbolic rebirth whereas the birth of sarah's baby brings literal darkness despair and death Mm-hmm. um and while jesus and you know his family they were immigrants they were coming back for a census to be taken in this story the immigrants are 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 feared you know they are they are the unspoken threat because mm-hmm. of these riots and the police activity but yeah th- this idea of maybe she doesn't even want this child yeah. i mean certainly not to the point of you know aborting it but just i was struck by in both times watching this where how sarah doesn't speak a whole lot to begin with but when she does speak, especially to the woman and sort of like, you know, why are you doing this or this kind of thing? There's no real, there's not even a, a mention of like, this isn't your baby or like, or please don't hurt the baby. There's no real mention of that no. whatsoever. I mean, she certainly fights back, but that's also just a natural physiological response mm-hmm. to like self-preservation. Like it, it just kind of, you get the sense that not <laughs> the woman is a horrible woman, but that she would be, the willing mother and Sarah is very much not that. Well, I think there's a, a, a reason for that though. And I, I, you know, this, on this watch, I kind of made the connection with like Amelia and the Babadook who mm. her son, Sam is born the same day that her husband dies, like taking Amelia to the hospital. He also dies in a car accident. Um, mm. So every day that, Amelia looks at Sam she's reminded of like the 
death of like the one true love in her life in the house. And on top of that, having to like care for like a special needs child who's very high attent needs a lot of attention through the, his ADHD um, and just missing a lot of social cues, like the exhaustion that Amelia goes through. And I think like Sarah very much sees the writing on the wall. Like she understands what it's going to be like to be a single mom caring for a baby that like all of these plans that she had made, like that whole life has been snatched from her at that point. Um, and you can feel like I've worked with parents that have lost children as a mental health counselor. I've worked with parents on that grief and with the woman and her, the grief that really drives her insane is you're mourning two lives. You're mourning the life of the child you lost mm -hmm. that was inside of her. You're also mourning the child that will never be the memories. They'll never get to have the loves. They'll never get to experience. Like she's never there. Her child will, because it was never born because she lost it. They'll never get to experience any of those things. So it's really, you're grieving two losses at that point. So I understand it. Um, I feel like the filmmakers do Sarah dirty in the third act, starting with there's a moment where they're confronting one another in the kitchen and mm. Sarah takes that knitting needle and she points it to her stomach. Like when she realizes that you want the baby, I will make sure that you will never get this baby, even if it means killing it. And I think that that's a moment to me that is meant to drive a wedge between Sarah and the audience where at the end of the movie, when Sarah dies, spoiler alert, when Sarah is brutally murdered in a way that is just, we get to in a minute, um, you almost are put in a position where you feel like, well, they had it coming to them because of like what they threatened to do to their child. And your allegiance at that point shifts from Sarah to the woman. That's a really interesting read and, and something that never occurred to me because I, I I guess when I saw it, I read it as sort of like this is she's finally keyed into how she can turn the tables a little mm -hmm. bit, um, you know, believing that she would never actually do it. But it's sort of like, OK, if this is what you want, then this is what I'm going to be. Then this is what I'm going to put in danger but yeah, you're right. It's sort of like um, it does sort of kind of then force us to start relating to or at least kind of like, well, how why am I rooting for you now when this is what you would resort to? Yeah. And it is. Yeah, it is kind of. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of that, a lot of those last 15, 20 minutes are, are the ones where where the film does. And I hate saying this because it's such like a an old person you know conservative thing but like where they do take it a little bit too far in that sense emotionally and that's also i i had forgotten about the scene where the police officer who's not dead but he you know his eyes he's got no eyes mm -hmm. and so he's just hitting anything he can with the baton and he smacks sarah in the stomach mm -hmm. and there's the specific shot of him doing that once again cutting back to the baby inside as though it's like yeah we know like 
once again, it's emotionally manipulative. Mm-hmm. Like, look at how dangerous it is. And yeah. then it, there's also the, the brief shot of then like her water breaking, the placenta kind of coming out. It's like, why, why did we need to see yeah. that? Why and did it, you need to include that? And it feels like when you're cutting to the image of the baby getting hit in the womb, you're not supposed to feel any empathy or sympathy for Sarah in that moment. You're only supposed to care about the only reason why Sarah matters is because of what she's carrying inside of her. And like, if you can just disregard that vessel, the only thing that matters to me, it feels like this movie was written with the last shot in mind, the image of the woman holding and comforting the baby with her burned up face. And what is just sucks so much is like Sarah you know, when she fights back, like you see her like burn the woman's face in a moment where you think that she's completely done for at that point. It's almost would be a mercy kill at that point. And then um, she like stalks her using like the lights are out in the home. She like uses the flash on her camera to find this person. Um, And she has her like dead to rights in what does her in. But like you said, the cop, who like is just another man blindly flailing away and he just causes like the death of this woman basically by hitting her like she at this point she's completely helpless the baby's coming out she crawls up the steps and again she crawls up the steps why so you can have that shot of like the blood flowing down the stairs yeah what really hit me is the closing moments of this movie now is like when sarah is doing that and when she's trapped by the woman who basically cuts her open with those scissors, like just cuts her like you would a sheet of paper and reaches in to pull out the baby. It's like Sarah is screaming for her mother at that point. She's calling for her mummy. And I think that's what really did me in. And it was just like, I didn't need this. Like, I love horror movies. I love, you know, I don't, I'm not someone that decries like cinematic violence. I don't believe in censorship. Um. But I just like it, you know, and hey, this there is someone that this movie is for someone, you know, but I think like I am at a point right now where like seeing someone completely helpless, cut open with a pair of scissors and having like their kid removed from them while they scream for their mother and then bleed out after everything they've been put through. Like, I'm sorry, like, I'm an old man yelling at the clouds, but I am no longer the person for this movie no i think you're i think you're spot on with that um i, I was also wondering because i was just thinking about this as you were talking where there there's a bit of an exchange between them before the woman starts cutting where it almost kind of seems like the film wants us to believe that they're not simpatico but just like they connect in the sense of mm-hmm. we've got to get the baby out or the baby is is and, and like and that seems like an unearned kind of connection mm-hmm. um and and yeah that it, it's it's funny because I've tried to, I, I, I don't know if I can necessarily define mean spirited when it comes to a film, but I know that I've seen stuff where I sort of just like, my reaction is like, you put the character and you put all of us through that for this. Yeah. And the, the and it's funny because I've, I've, after listening to your martyrs episode, I know I tweeted at you uh, that was like, ah, you know, I, now i appreciate this movie I, mm-hmm. you know martyrs is never a film that i want to watch ever again but right. I, pre- I i appreciate it especially based on your conversation having a conversation with you and this i'm like yeah maybe i think i actually appreciate inside a lot less than i than i did no um i definitely I, do i know that like on this rewatch i definitely do yeah 
and yeah, the the only other instance that that occurs to me right now in terms of like what what film also gave me that kind of reaction was the American remake of The Evil Dead, mm-hmm. um, which also had a lot of gore, a lot of viscera, a lot of like people going through these horrible physical and emotional things. And at the end, like there wasn't even a big bad or, or like it was just kind of like it was it was just kind of like one reanimated corpse that kind of crawled out of the ground I'm like really you're gonna put you're gonna put your protagonist through all mm-hmm. of that suffering you're gonna put all of us through that suffering just for this thing at the end like that mm-hmm. it, it it feel like it, it feels i don't want to i don't want to define mean-spirited by mean-spirited but it just kind of felt like um there's something there's something perverse about the suffering that you've put us through for a payoff which is not satisfactory right. or meeting you know that right those emotional heights we've been through yeah there's nothing about the character of sarah that calls for this kind of ending like it's not a deserved ending and not that anybody deserves this but like you know like we're talking about like cinematic comeuppance or cinematic justice like that's a different thing um there's nothing about her character her actions, her motivations. And to me, it just feels like this is a character that has been like put through such an awful ringer from like the physical impact of like a horrific car accident to like losing her husband to, you know, being faced with this idea of like motherhood on her own to being isolated from everybody that, you know, isolating herself from everybody that she loved, that she hadn't lost to the extensive like physical and psychological trauma that the woman puts her through over the course of this night to like having that moment where you feel like she's going to get away and then having it like ripped away. To me, it just feels like, again, the last, this movie was written backwards where they came up with the idea of this last shot and like, wouldn't it be cool if, Mm -hmm. um, which to me is just like, and it's it's talented filmmaking. It's a movie. I mean, we've been talking. We wouldn't talk about this for two hours if we didn't appreciate that there's some artistry that is involved with it. Sure. Um, but it's just to me like the tritest edgelord shit. And I think like this <laughs> particular era of horror is one um, like the, there's a South Korean movie called The Butcher that is also like this for me, where it's very much like torture for the sake of torture for two hours. Um, there is like the whole rise of like the splat pack horror generation, which is like, sure. to me, torture for the sake of torture, which is just like, it's not, maybe that appealed to me 10 years ago to a slight degree, but I'm at a point now where I'm like, and Hey, you know what? It's okay that it's not for me and it's for other people. Like sure. if this is something that you enjoy and that's where you're at, like, that's totally okay. This is, I'm just saying that for me personally, like I'm just in a place where like, I've got more years behind me than ahead of me. And I just do not need this in my life at this point. No, and that, and that's totally fair. Um, and I, I just feel like I have to make one comment. You mentioned the splat pack and like, you'd mentioned Frontiers as being one of the best Texas mm-hmm. Ch- uh, Chainsaw Massacre remakes. Uh, one of the worst is Wolf Creek in my opinion. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But no, yeah, and it, it is, it's just kind of, uh, and this all, I think, gets back to this idea of the problem starting with two men who are like, we're going to make a story about women. Well, there was your first mistake. And then to kind of see it play out mm-hmm. is just like, 
okay, yeah, clearly this movie was written and mm-hmm. directed by two dudes. Clearly yeah. it was. And and yeah, you're you're right. Sarah is a character that starts out at the bottom and just sinks from there. Yeah. And and it's like, yeah, I mean, cool. What was what was the purpose yeah. of putting us all through that? If we refer back to their previous quote, mm-hmm. because you don't believe in happy endings. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. Thanks. Guys. Um. Thanks. Thanks for that. So at least it's short. Um. <laughs> all right. So Jim, tell us about the cast of Cthulhu. Yeah. So. Uh, I had done I Do Movies Badly for a long time. Um, and, you know, it, it was it was a lot of fun doing it. But it, the most fun was always when I could talk with people. I mean, the episodes on my own were not a drag. I certainly mm-hmm. enjoyed it, but I hate listening to myself talk. Um, and so that was 75% of my podcast is listening to myself talk. Um, and so I just, you know, I, 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 wanted to do something with someone else and i've I've been a big fan of hp lovecraft for as long as i can imagine i mean i think the two the two or three podcasts that i started listening to when i first started listening to podcasts were the criterion cast battleship retention and um the hp lovecraft uh literary society Mm -hmm. basically at that point they were going through his entire um bibliography and um I'm not much of a writer, but um, I, I love his writing style. Um, uh, cosmic horror is a thing which is, it works wonderfully well in the interior when you have a first person narrator um, talking about what they're feeling and what they experience. It's, and it's a much harder thing to do on film where everything is exterior and you can't really depict a movie of a guy, mm-hmm. you know, having internal monologue for 90 minutes and then going insane. Um so I, I knew I, and you know, just I had a pun in my head, you know, the Call of Cthulhu is arguably Lovecraft's most famous source. I'm like, oh, the cast of Cthulhu, that's, there's, some, there's something mm-hmm. there. And so I, I really wanted to, to do that as a podcast, but I knew I wanted to do it with someone else. And getting back to something you said earlier, you know, how you connected with your, with your friend, and, you know, mm-hmm. I'm so sorry to hear, uh, you know, that, that he has passed. Um, my my best man and my best friend uh we connected uh over you know he there was a party at my at my house and my parents were away and he had slept over and we were talking about reanimator that was the first conversation i ever had with him was about reanimator and we've been friends like ever since then um so james mccormick who is my co-host he used to be on the criterion cast um he just tweeted out one day like i'm looking to do a podcast Mm -hmm. Who, who wants to do something any ideas and i tweeted at him and he was like sounds great let's do it and so we do as i say we go through films that are both direct adaptations of, of lovecraft's work such as reanimator or from beyond uh let me name another movie that's not Stuart gordon um nothing is occurring to me right now except for Stuart gordon movies but uh, you know uh the dunwich horror which you know there's a 1970s version there was also a late 2000s version um and and you know that there's or the ones that are maybe just influenced by him spiritually or by existential dread or cosmic horror um and that that is open to interpretation uh some of the best are john carpenter's films i think prince of darkness is Mm -hmm. is one of the best ones when it comes to that sort of stuff um we just got done uh with uh benson moorhead those are are Mm -hmm. not so much uh in my opinion but Xavier Johns, we, we covered Cold Skin, a film that he did in 2017, mm-hmm. which has some vibes over the shadow over Innsmouth, but not quite. Um, and, and, and just that, we, I mean, we talk about movies, but we talk about 
some pop culture stuff. We've talked way too much about Zack Snyder in the past couple of weeks. We did an episode on WandaVision just because everyone was talking about WandaVision and we watched it and loved mm-hmm. it. So we're bi-weekly, uh, you know, and we're, uh, yeah, it, it's been, a, it's been a good time. And, and the thing about HP Lovecraft is his, his stuff is in, uh, is in the, you know, the public realm, you know, so anyone and everyone can make a feature out of Lovecraft's mm-hmm. work. So that's why you get stuff that ranges from like, oh, wow, this is a, a pretty cool, um, you know, uh, hidden gem, such as, you know, uh, a filmmaker who is a, I believe, a, a Vietnamese um, uh, guy who is living in Germany named Quan Vu did mm-hmm. an adaptation of The Color Out of Space in black and white, which is absolutely phenomenal. It's free on Prime if you want to seek mm-hmm. it out. Um, to uh, utter garbage because anyone can make it. So Charles mm-hmm. Band, who is you know the cut rate producer behind the Evil Bong franchise, or or Ginger Dead Man, mm-hmm. or uh, Kendra and Barbie versus whatever, um, he's he's stepped in and he's produced his own stuff as well. Um, some of which which has Jeffrey Coombs and some of which which does not have Jeffrey. No. Um, and, and so it, it's really kind of a lot of fun because there's no shortage of material. Um, I mean, I guess there is. I mean, he only put out so much stuff and we'll probably never see Guillermo del Toro's At the Mountains of Madness adaptation, much to our uh, chagrin, mm-hmm. especially considering it was uh, Prometheus, which pushed him out of that, which is a movie I don't care for. Oh, please. It's the second best movie of the Alien <laughs> franchise. <laughs> I, I know. I've heard that on this podcast before and I still listen to you guys. Because um, we're right. You know, it's, <laughs> um, your feelings you know them to be true <laughs> um but yeah so uh um it, it's just it's been it's been a lot of fun and uh we we come from different angles uh or perspectives i'm, mm-hmm. I'm much more of a not an academic but i i, I like my my high-minded engagement in james uh name movie and he has seen it whether mm-hmm. it's you know something in a criterion collection or the schlockiest of schlock you could possibly imagine so um, we're pretty excited because our, our next episode is going to be about Brian Yisner's Society, uh, and which is, you know, uh, the, the practical effects done by a guy named Screamin' George, uh, mm-hmm. who, or Screamin' Mad George, I believe. And so that's, that's going to be very exciting. But um, what we also try to keep in mind is the fact that we do a podcast, which is based on the work of a guy who was an anti-Semite, was a racist, was a not very good person in his time. Um, and sort of grappling with how what people choose to take from his vision, how people coming from a different perspective choose to interpret his works, and the you know and, and that sort of thing. So um, it is something that we are that we are mindful of. Uh, we you could say we are a political podcast mm-hmm. um, because of that, and because of uh, I mean, on our most recent episode, we we spoke a great deal about the accusations against Richard Stanley recently, and. Mm-hmm. Um, just how it was right that uh, I guess you know quote-unquote cancel culture came for him which is a term that we don't care for mm-hmm. but um yeah so so we are mindful of the the artist whose work that we admire and who we should add um has been dead for a long time and is no longer benefiting off of the kind of stuff mm-hmm. like the horror out of Red Hook um and just uh yeah covering some some great films and some not so great films and just uh talking to some cool people on the way jerry smith came on to talk to us about the mist uh last year we got to talk to the two co-directors of the uh, hp lovecraft film festival that's based out in a uh, on the west coast so um 
yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. And it's just, I, I mean, these sort of things are, it's so much better to engage in community, especially when it's horror. I mean, you've talked mm-hmm. about it already, but the horror community, they're just so enthusiastic and they're so excited for the most part. And so that's, that's like, I mean, I mean if there's an enthusiastic recommendation for a movie coming from someone, chances are it's a horror movie. And I, yeah. and I, I kind of love that. Absolutely. And where can we find you on social media? Yeah. So um, my personal Twitter is uh, Nolan Fixes Teeth. Uh, our the cast of Cthulhu you can find as um, cast Cthulhu. Um, our episodes are on Podbean, so castofcthulhu.podbean.com. And also, mm-hmm. if you go to battleshipretention.com, we are hosted on there as well. Um, and we're on Facebook, Cthulhu Cast on mm-hmm. there. If you actually Google the cast of Cthulhu, um, you will find the first search is the cast of the movie Cthulhu, which mm-hmm. makes sense. You know, that's just SEO. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, Jim, thanks for joining us tonight. I think this has been a great discussion. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, So listeners, here is what we have coming up next. Uh, We are leaving the um, sandy beaches of France, and we are going to that cabin in the woods as we tackle the Evil Dead films. So the original trilogy, as well as the 20, is it? 2013 it's been that long the remake um i I am so excited to talk about this original trilogy of movies um and what goes into them i know Lindsay is absolutely thrilled as well so we are going to have a groovy time with that um really quickly if you enjoy what we do here i am going to make my patreon pitch for you folks right now um as you know, like we, as a matter of fact, give me one minute because I'm <laughs> going to bring up the Patreon page and I'll have to do a little bit of fancy editing. Second, I am fading here. View page, public page. Come on. There we go. Okay. So listeners, I'm going to take a minute and, and pitch you on our Patreon site and why you should become a patron. I mean, the obvious reason I'll say what's in it for you first is basically anyone who becomes a Patreon member gets access to at least one bonus show every month. So right now, like this month we did the guest, we have done um, a number of like, we've done the blob. We have done house on a haunted Hill. We've done Batman 89, so every month you get a full length episode on um, a movie we typically wouldn't cover. As you go up the levels, you get a little bit more and we're always looking to add some more stuff to that. Okay. So $2, $5, $10. That's what the Patreon levels. That's what you get. What does it mean for us? Well, we're an independent podcast, which means like as I think Jim can attest to like, it is a crowded land space that is out there right now. And what's happened over the past couple of years is we've seen increasingly like companies step into this land space, celebrities step into this land space, persons that have like marketing budgets and editing teams and social media teams that me, that we could never in our wildest dreams compete with. So this is something that like, it's probably two hours of your time to listen to, but each episode is probably about 10 to 15 hours of preparation time for us. And we love it. I mean, at the end of the day, like 
I wouldn't do this show for over a hundred episodes if I didn't love interacting with our, our guests and our listeners. Um, and it's really, and I just really enjoy bringing it to you. Becoming a patron and supporting the show means we have access to like, I have the evil dead copy at uh, compendium arriving on Friday, which is provided basically because we have patrons and I can go, you know what? I can drop $30 for a book that I wouldn't normally do. It means we can buy the special editions of discs so we can get access to all the bonus features. So we talk about the behind the scenes and making of and influences, we have access to it. It means like buying other resources and watching interviews, upgrading our equipment, upgrading what we used to edit with or speak into, all of that is listener supported. And you know, I know that imposter syndrome is a thing. I don't have imposter syndrome. Um, I am very proud of what Jerry and I and Lindsay and I have built with this show. I think it's one of the best horror movie podcasts there is out there. And you are free to disagree with it. But hey, you're two hours into listening right now. So we're doing something right. <laughs> and I want to ask you, are we worth the price of a cup of coffee a month? Because at two bucks, that's a small cup of coffee. Are we worth two bucks a month and you still get stuff for that money? Are we worth it to you? And if the answer is yes, and you're in a position where you can do it, because we know it's tight for a lot of people right now. If you're in a position we're like, I can spare that $2, that $5, that $10. We really appreciate it. Um, we will keep giving you stuff in return. And we'll keep not just the bonus stuff, but this show in return. So if you feel that you can do it, please go to patreon.com, pod in the pendulum, sign up and become a Patreon today, become a supporter of the show. And we so appreciate it if you can. And we love you anyway. If you can't support the show, if like times are really tight right now and you can't, totally understand. Like, look, we're not going to ask anyone to do something they feasibly can't do. What you can do that is free is you can subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. You can rate our show with five stars and you can write a quick review of us. That drives more eyeballs to us. I can tell you in March... As we record this, there's a week left to go in the month. We have a third more listens than a March of a year ago. We've only done two shows compared to five because we've gone to a bi-weekly schedule in order to just kind of conserve ourselves a little bit. So, and that is all driven by you, our listeners, interacting with us on Twitter, telling your friends, reviewing our show, recommending us to other people when they want podcast recommendations like we could not grow the show if it wasn't for you and we will always be so grateful for that so because of that we want to bring you the shit you love and we want to do it more and we hope you like it we'll be back so from for jim for myself for Lindsay, everyone have a fantastic night and we're back in two weeks with the evil dead fuck yeah <laughs>